Okay, so we come to the final letter in the book, or the letter to the churches in the book of Revelation. Anybody tell me what's special about this one, what's unique about it? What's different about it? No, anybody? This is the only letter where there is nothing to commend the church for. There is nothing that God finds in this place that he can say good and well done. It's a bit of a slap in the face, really. It's quite hard to get something positive out of this letter, but I hope I will do by the end of the day. You're going to be here for a while. <laughs> I meant by the end of this morning. Let's read it, shall we? Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. I'm going in and out again, aren't I? Okay. <clears throat> Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me, so that you will not be ashamed of nakedness. Ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door and I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Excuse me. <clears throat> Hello, I'm back again. And you give me some new batteries. You want me to use a hand mic? Just talk amongst yourselves for a moment. We'll be back in a minute. Yes. I don't like hands because I tend to wave my hands like this. But Okay, thank you. So let's look at a little bit of background to the town of Laodicea. It was situated, have you got the, can you stick the map up on the wall? I said I would bring a map this morning to um, show you where all these churches we've been talking about are situated. You can see them there over the corner um, of Asia Minor. And uh, that, these are the, the 
places that uh, these letters have been written to. As I said at the beginning, they would have been real churches in the time. So the Laodicea is uh, situated halfway between Philadelphia and Colossae, not far from Hierapolis or Aeropolis. It received its name from Laodice, wife of Antiochus. They have great names in biblical terms. The second king of Syria, by whom it was rebuilt and made beautiful. It had borne in earlier times the name of Diosopolis and afterwards Rois. It shared with Thyatira and Sardis in the dye trade. The woods grown in the neighborhood were famous for their quality and rich blackness of their color. Prosperity and trade had so enriched the population, they were a really rich city. And uh, when the great earthquake came, I think it was around AD 60, um, the town was almost destroyed. And most of the other towns had to seek um, financial help in order to rebuild. Laodicea hadn't, so they were rich in the world. They were able to carry the work of rebuilding the city without applying for, as we would know them as grants. Paul also mentions this city in the church in his writings to the Colossians. And in fact, chapter 4 of that book urges that the letter he is writing to Colossian church be read to the church in Laodicea also. It was an important city in the area, situated upon the great Roman road from Ephesus to the east, and situated between Colossae and Heropolis. Colossae was wedged into a narrow valley and was watered by icy streams which tumbled down from the heights above. But that was in stark contrast to the other city, Heropolis. <laughs> I have difficulty with this one. Heropolis, Hierapolis, because it was famous for its hot springs which flowed out of the city and across the high plain, and they crashed down a cliff just in front or just that faced Laodicea. And this is where this whole thing about being hot and cold and lukewarm comes from, because by the time the water got down to the bottom of that cliff, it was, it was lukewarm, it wasn't hot anymore, it was putrid. And in fact, if you drank that water in Laodicea, you would spit it out or spew it out. It was also a church that Paul had really deep interest in the believers there. They were constantly on his mind, as referenced in his letter to the Colossians. He knew their special temptations to the worship of idols and to spiritual paralysis, springing up from their so-called prosperity and intellectual pride. He had great heart conflict for those in Laodicea, as those in the Colossian church also. You can find reference to this at the beginning of his chapter in chapter 3 of Colossians where he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, Laodicea had a problem with wealth. It had a problem with prosperity. And Paul was talking to the Colossians as well about this whole thing, about setting our hearts on things above not setting our hearts in the things of this world, not setting our hearts and building up treasures for ourselves in the world, but setting our hearts on things above. This was the problem in the Laodicean church. I want to suggest to you today that this letter correlates to the completion 
of the old covenant and the judgment of the Pharisaic system. I would also suggest to you this morning that the angel refer, referred to here as the spirit of fear of the Lord, which is the seventh and final part of the seven aspect, rather, of the sevenfold spirit of the Lord as you find in Isaiah. The fear of the Lord comes from that face-to-face -face relationship with Christ, which in, for, in, in turn will transform our lives. It's as we have this face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus, our lives will be transformed. And in turn, that will transform our communities. And in turn, that will transform our towns and our cities. And in turn, that transforms our world in which we live. You see, when we truly have a face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus, when we truly know him, it cannot help but transform our lives. It cannot help but change us. When we truly know him in the heart, when we truly know him with our hearts, when our spirits become one with his, then it cannot help but transform our lives in such a way that it then has an impact in the community and the world in which we live. We can no longer remain the same because before we had nothing and now we have the power of God living in us. And that power is what changes everything. That power is what lacked in the Laodicean church. We've talked about this before, the fact that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We've been transformed, transferred into the kingdom of heaven, and we live under those principles. That power of God changes everything in our lives. We carry the light from which the darkness flees. Having that face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus, having that one-to-one, -one, having that his spirit in full hours can do nothing but transform our lives and change us from glory to glory. And yet here we find this letter to the church in Laodicea where none of this had happened. The name Laodicea, interestingly enough, means just people. Now we can take that one or two ways. But I believe it speaks to the days of when Jesus walked the earth when his people, the Jews, had become self-righteous and pronounced themselves just a, they pronounced themselves as being over everybody else. But they'd become absent of the glory of God. They did not possess the power. And yet they thought of themselves as just. They thought of themselves as those that brought the law, those that made everybody else follow the law. They thought themselves as being just people. But in fact, they had become just people because they didn't have the power of God living in them. In this letter, Jesus is seen as the faithful, the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the as the new as the new living translation puts it, the beginning of the new creation. Amen is used here as a personal term. 
In fact, it's the Hebrew word for verily, which is a word that Jesus uses often. Verily, verily, I say to you. And he therefore now reveals himself as the source of certainty and truth. In him is yes and amen. In him there is no guesswork. He is the faithful and true witness who speaks what he knows and testifies of what he has seen. Faithful here is to be taken as meaning trustworthy. You know, we can trust in what Jesus says. We can trust in who he is. He's the faithful one. He was the beginning of creation. It's interesting, I think, that the NLT puts it in as the beginning of God's new creation. Because Jesus is the second Adam. He is where this new creation that we are comes But Jesus was there at the beginning. He was the beginning. These people in Laodicea were neither hot nor cold, referencing the the lukewarm water that used to come down into the city from the hills above. They were not hot on fire, nor were they cold to Christ. They had adopted this form of godliness that the Pharisees had adopted. Godliness without power. It's almost in a way like Sardis. If you remember Sardis, they were doing all the right things or, had, or were seen to be godly, but yet there was no life. There was no power. Their lives had not been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Their lives had not been transformed by this close relationship with Jesus Christ, this face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one-on-one relationship with Jesus. When our character becomes one with His, when He takes over our lives, the Pharisees had become the same. They had this form of godliness but lacked the connection with Christ and the power, and they couldn't see it. This, I believe, was the end of the old covenant nation of Israel, which was brought to its conclusion between A.D. 30 and 70, from the time of Jesus through to the tribulation when the Jerusalem was destroyed. This was, in fact, the generation that Jesus said would not pass until prophetic words of his mouth were fulfilled. You can find reference to this through the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of their lukewarm condition, Jesus said he would spew them out of his mouth. He was using the same imagery as from the surrounding area, where if you drank the lukewarm water, the immediate reaction of you was to spew it back out again because it was putrid. But I believe he's also referencing here back to the using of the Hebraic phrase that was used when the Jewish people broke the covenant of God. It was part of the curse of breaking the covenant. The Israelite people had been told that if they became like the nations of the world, then the promised land would vomit them out. 
the church in Laodicea had become so entrenched and so conditioned by the world around them to no longer be seekers of God and all that he had and all that he had for them. They thought themselves rich. They thought themselves in need of nothing at all. And yet they had nothing. Not one good word could God, the angel, bring to this place. I think this is the description of the Pharisaic Judaism of the first century. A people who thought they were rich. They thought they were the chosen people of God. In need of nothing. And yet they had nothing. Jesus describes them in a parable recorded in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. See, they thought they were rich. They thought they had everything. They thought they did everything that was required. They were caught up in this prosperity system that the world was bringing. They were a rich people. But yet they had nothing. They had nothing. They thought they had God all figured out. They thought they had it all. And yet they had nothing. Jesus tells them to go. To go out and purchase more. They needed gold refined by the fire. Signifying their need of faith towards God. You see, they were relying on themselves. They weren't relying on God. They were relying on themselves. They were relying on their own systems. They were relying on their own power, their own prosperity. And yet Jesus said, you have nothing. Their hearts needed to be refined by the Holy Spirit. They needed to purchase garments of white. Again, here is white being used to signify cleansing or righteousness. But I also believe it signifies here the wedding gown for the bride of the church. The bride who is the church. What has been asked of them here is that they go and pay the price of putting on the wedding gown. Those that had already done this, as we've learned and as we've gone through these letters, those that already purchased that wedding gown, those that had already put themselves in that place where Jesus had taken over their lives, they were being persecuted. They were facing great persecution for their faith. So what Jesus is saying here is there is a price to pay. There is a price to pay for putting on the wedding gown. And it's high. There's a parable that Jesus tells of the wedding guest arriving at the wedding, not dressed in the right clothes. And he's turned away. This is what he's talking about. Are we dressed in the right clothes? Are we ready for the wedding? Those without the right attire will be rejected from the wedding. But what is the right attire? What is the right attire? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the one who pursues us every minute of every day. He pursues our lives. He is the only one. See, none of this other stuff that this pe- these people had accumulated, none of this other things that they were doing was worth anything. Not a thing. It did nothing for God. It did nothing for them. Worthless. And I hasten to add, if this is all we know of Jesus, then this too may be the same. It's about having a personal relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ. It's about that, your spirit becoming one with His. It's about clothing ourselves in that wedding gown, that white, that cleansing white dress. Men, before you see anything, I don't expect you to go out and buy one, okay? But it's clothing ourselves in Jesus. It's allowing His Spirit to become one with ours. It's allowing Him to take over our lives. And as He does that, and as we allow Him to take over every part of our being, our lives cannot help but be transformed by His light. Our lives can't stay the same. They were also told to put on ointment on their eyes to help them see. Not in the natural, but to see the spiritual things of God. To see in the spiritual realms. See, we can only see in the Spirit if we have the Spirit of God living in us. We can only receive the Spirit when we clothe ourselves in Christ. The veil of the old covenant was still over their eyes. You can find reference to that as well in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in his second letter to the Corinthians. They could not see because they were still living in the old covenant. The veil of the old covenant was still covering their eyes. You see, I'm becoming more and more convinced that God wants to see, God sees us as his children. He wants a relationship. He wants a father-child relationship. That's what he wants. He created Adam and Eve in the garden to do what? To walk with them. And can you imagine his disappointment when he came down to the garden one day and he couldn't find them? His heart was broken. He created us for relationship. A one-to-one relationship. A father and son and father and daughter relationship. God wanted to approach these people in Laodicea as a father. As a father. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord would grant the grace of honoring their father in heaven. He had come to treat them as his sons and daughters. He was ready to rebuke them. Yes, he was. We all know as parents that we have to rebuke our children from time to time. 
but he wanted to come to them as a father. We are his children. And God today has not changed. God today is the same as he was then and the same as he will be in generations to come. He wants to treat you and I like his sons and his daughters. Just as we were created to be in the beginning. Not his minions to do his bidding. Not his puppets to do as he wills. But he wants to treat us and come to us like a father. Like a father whose love is greater than we can ever understand. And I know some here may not have, a, have had a great relationship with your earthly father. But I want to tell you, God's love for you is greater than we can ever, ever, ever fully understand. So much so that he sent his son to die in our place on the cross. That we might have life. That we might approach God as a child. We can't often recognize him in that way because we're still treating him as they did in the old covenant. Treating him as this far off person, this, this holy, 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 and he is, please hear me. He's a holy God. But we come to him sometimes as that and we, we see him as this far off person that isn't connecting with us. We just need to come and worship him and everything will be all right. God wants to connect with us. God wants to connect with us here, our heart. And if all we do is come to him and worship him and, and, give, and, and see him as this far off person that doesn't really take very much of an interest in our lives, we're never going to get connected. He wants to connect to us as children. He wants to take our hand and he wants to walk with us in the garden. He wants to take our hand and walk with us through this journey we call life. And you know, life sucks sometimes. Life really sucks sometimes. But I know that if we stretch out our hand, then God will take it and he will lead us through. God is a holy God. No question. But we mustn't live in fear of him. We must live as children. His children. Where we can cry to him, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. But we so often come to God as this person that we can't get near that we can't approach. We think we come and we pay homage to him with all our worship and all the things we do for God when all he wants is, is to come to him as his children. All he wants is to be sons, us for, his, for us to be sons and daughters. We think our God is sometimes this person that sits up there with a finger waiting to point at us and say when we've done things wrong and chastises. And, you know, part of that 
is true, but is that, if that is the only way that we see God our Father, then we've missed it. You know, he does say in this passage even that he says that he, he, he's quite happy to rebuke his children. And sometimes we need rebuking. But he's not waiting for us to fall over. He's not waiting for us to trip up. He's not waiting for us to fall over so he can point the finger and say, got you. He's waiting for us to fall over so that he can stretch out his hand and pick us up and say, let's go at this again together. He's standing at the door of your heart, knocking. Are we going to let him in? Are we going to let him in this morning? Have you allowed your lives to be totally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by Jesus? He wants to transform our lives. He wants to connect with us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a one-to-one, a face-to-face. Are you willing to come to him as children? Jesus uses the illustration of children a lot in his Gospels. Come as little children with no fear. You know what kids are like. You know, I, 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 I'm getting in, I'm in my 50s now and I still do some skiing and it really gets my goat when I see, do you know that expression? Yeah, good, that's good. It doesn't mean anything else here, that's good. These young kids who are like three or four and they come speeding past me on the ski slopes. Not a fear in the world. No fear. That's how God wants us to approach him. With no fear. He wants us to be his children. Let the little children come to me. It's an illustration of what God wants, how he wants us to approach him. Sons and daughters who have been clothed in white through the cross. When are we going to realize it's all done? Christ has done it all. He did it all for us on the cross. Nothing that we can do, nothing that these, this, these people in Laodicea could do would bring them any closer to God. In fact, he said, you are lukewarm. I would rather you were hot or cold, but lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. Jesus completed his work on the cross. It's done. It's finished. His words not mine. Jesus came. He came, he died, he rose again that we might not have to. He came, he died, he rose again that we might have this relationship renewed with God the Father. Abba, Father. Yes, he's a holy God, but he's a Father. And he wants to approach us as his children. And he wants us to approach him as his children with no fear. No fearing that we're going to fall over, trip up, do something wrong, mess up our lives. Because we will. Because we're human. We do it. But yet Jesus is still there holding out his hand.
and saying, come. Come, son. Come, daughter. Let me pick you up. Let me grab you by the hand. Let me hold you close. And let's continue this journey we call life together. It is finished, he said on the cross. It's all done. Nothing we can do. Nothing the people in the Laodicean church or any of those churches that we've looked at thus far. Nothing they could do could bring them closer to God. Because it's done. It's Jesus. Jesus did it all for us. And he's standing at the door of our hearts and saying, I want to come in. I want to come in. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you today because Jesus has done it all. There is nothing that we can do that can take away anything that Jesus has done. There is nothing that we can do with our lives that will change the way you think about us because it's done, it's finished on the cross. That was the day you loved us as much as you possibly could. I pray today that you would help us approach you like children with no fear, no fear of failure, no fear of rejection. But just as little children coming to a father's foot, feet and looking up into their eyes and saying, here I am, daddy. I pray today that we would open our hearts and allow Jesus just to come and enfold us and wrap us in his arms and just tell him how much we love him as he pours his love over our lives. I pray today that we would allow his character to take over our character, his Holy Spirit to envelop every part of our being that we would know Jesus as our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
What a great song to finish. Lord, light the fire again. Lord, light the fire in our hearts again so that we wouldn't be cold, we wouldn't be lukewarm, but we'd be on fire and full of passion for Jesus. That our lives would be transformed, and in doing so, we'd transform the communities and the city that we live in. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time.